You are listening to a podcast from The National. We've waved the checkered flag on the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Imar Hospitality is selling key hotels in Dubai to Abu Dhabi National Hotels. And Carlos Rusin, Lebanon's favorite son, is very much in the news. As we head into the long weekend that is the National Day celebration, this is the Business Extra coming to you from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor, welcome. Thanks very much, Mustafa. As I said, uh, Imar Hospitality, part of uh, the uh, huge uh, company, uh, Imar Properties, uh, known for its development, but also its malls and and other aspects of the property-related and retail business. Um, There was some news out from its hospitality arm that it's selling uh, some key hotels to Abu Dhabi National Hotels of unsurprisingly, Abu Dhabi fame. <laughs> um, they, they, these include the Address uh, Dubai Mall, uh, which is a, v- a very well-known hotel. Um, undisclosed details on on that, on exactly how much the deal was, but it's it's definitely caused a bit of a stir as to the, the whys and hows and what this means. It has, yeah. I, I think the fact that I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult to analyze the merits of the deal, really, without knowing its value. Um, uh, it, it raises as many questions as uh, in a you know why is this happening is is it a problem of um, of uh, Ima Hospitality's making or is it are they taking advantage of a of an opportunity that they that they see that possibly isn't obvious. Well, you, I mean, you you raise a, a good point, which is immediately people are going to say this is somehow a um, an opportunity to raise money, to seek liquidate liquidation of, of key assets. Um, that you know there there were terms bandied about on social media um, which relate to Imar's financial position. Mm. Um, the perhaps as a function of sentiment. Sentiment hasn't been great the last uh, sort of twelve months about the Dubai property market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you can you can un, you can understand why immediately people would go that way. But perhaps there's somewhat another way to look at it, which is that um, uh, Imar Properties has evolved and has continued to evolve as a company over the last few years. Mm-hmm. They they spun off their UAE development arm last year. Um, there's talk about spinning off the hotels arm. Mm. They they are kind of moving on from a straight developer, um, and of course they have big projects. I mean, yeah. Dubai Creek is yeah. coming up, for example. Uh, they have Arabian ranches, yeah. um, but but as a holding company, Imar Properties is is definitely not the same beast it was a, a decade ago. Yeah, it's, it's not. Um, it seems to be moving away from the the idea of of you know build it and they will come sort of thing to uh, to more of a sense of um, as you say. Um, providing a, an opportunity to to move in different ways, to expand in different ways, in in, in a, as a different uh, entity than just building. Um, I, I wonder if it's a, a part of a broader trend for the Dubai economy itself. Um, it was very much driven by real estate um, before the financial crisis, and even to some extent after the financial crisis. But if you look at um, you know the, the the Dubai government budget is typically sort of high nineties um, income from fees mm-hmm. service mm-hmm. provider essentially. And if you look at um, Imar and how um, it's spun off its development arm, um, and it looks at for its hospitality arm as, as being a manager of hotels rather than owner of hotels, that services. And and it, it could be part of you know that broader shift of Dubai towards a, a very service-driven economy, which relates more to demographics. The more people that come in, uh, the more services they need, the more fees that can be collected by the government, um, the more added value that can be provided 
decided. And we, it, it's it, it, this is a lot of this is anecdotal because, as mm. you said, we don't have the numbers necessarily to back it up. But it definitely feels as if it's a more sustainable outlook for the economy there if it's more service driven rather than necessarily building building big assets. Right? Yeah, I mean, it it could be that you know maybe the the, the perception is that perhaps for the time being, certainly that uh, providing. Um, space for people to to come and fill is not the best way to do it at the moment although given that the tourist arrivals to to Dubai continue to to um, you know escalate at, at a very healthy level um, but you you can outbuild the amount of people who are coming so maybe they've, they're kind of putting the brakes on that a bit and thinking um, you know let, let's 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 get for the for looking to the future let's let's um, rearrange the structure of how we how we their provide risk these. model essentially yeah yeah, I mean, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, the one thing is, I would say that you know, the clearly from the other side, the Abu Dhabi National Hotels believe in the tourist fi- outlook and the visitor outlook and the hospitality yeah. outlook for Dubai because they're getting into a, a, essentially pretty much a new market for them or diversifying, should yeah. we say? Um, the Abu Dhabi hotel sector has been, if I'm kind, <laughs> it's been it's it's been less than dynamic. Um, over the last few years, been just sleeping. Uh, yeah. Let's say yes, exactly. It, it, there, there hasn't been a lot of of direction. You've got some fantastic hotels mm. here, but mm. perhaps um, in in recent years it, it hasn't seen the levels of growth. So for Abu Dhabi National Hotels um, to pick up these assets in Dubai, it looks pretty good from that side. Again. All of this is the caveat is we don't know how much anybody yeah. paid for yeah. all of this. So we're not doing a pure sort of analysis, but more a kind of feeling our way around. Mm. As is everybody looking at Pro- it. Think, probably, yeah. right? There some, some people will know, but we're feeling a way around it. And we like the deal, generally mm. speaking. Mm. Seems good for Imar, seems good for Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi National Hotels. And we'll wait and see um, how the rest of it plays out. Yeah. Wh- while we're talking about tourists, Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, uh, you were there. Were you not? I wasn't there for the race. I was there on Friday, Saturday. Yeah, a yeah. purist for the, for the practice. And the <laughs> no, I was working on Sunday. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was good fun, and I must say, it was. I haven't been to it before, but it, I have been to other Grand Prix, and it was packed. It was absolutely packed. Um, an awful lot of, uh, to, to my ear anyway, perhaps unsurprisingly, an awful lot of British visitors. Um, of course, you know, being being in in uh, Abu Dhabi in November, uh, where would you rather be there or in uh, you know in London in yeah, November? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I th- last year, um, you know, anecdotally, you heard it w- sentiment was a bit softer at the race. There were a lot of things going on in the region at the time. Um, this year, again, anecdotally, I didn't go down myself, um, but the amount of people that were in town who I did meet with who were here for mm. for the, as, ostensibly for the race, but then, you know, wanted to chat and catch up and all that. It felt um, there were, there, a lot more people had flown in this year compared to last. Could be a function of people really want to know what's going on in the region, and this is mm-hmm. a good excuse. Mm-hmm. It makes a bit of business and pleasure. Yeah. Um, but also it goes to show that, um, you know, there continues to be an interest in Abu Dhabi and the wider UAE, um, and that can only be a good thing. So, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling again, again, if we're feeling around, um, you said that the final numbers aren't out for the the number of people that attended mm-hmm. um, uh, this Grand Prix. It's 10th year, is it? It's 10th anniversary. Yeah. Year, yeah. Um, which which is in, in of itself is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to have that uh, event continue for a decade. Um, and uh, it's, again, it's, it's sort of as we head into the, the end of 2018, we move into 2019, 
there isn't a lack of interest in Definitely not, what's no. going on here and in the economy. Um, whether that interest actually translates into anything tangible, we'll find out. Um, staying with cars mm. loosely, a <laughs> uh, story that's fascinating globally, not I mean, not directly for this region, but of interest is is what's going on with our yeah. with with Carlos Rusin. It's caught everybody's imagination, I think. So he's detained at the moment in he Japan is. for alleged financial misconduct. Yeah, yeah. He um, he was arrested in Tokyo on uh, Jan on um, what month are we in? November nineteenth uh, on uh, allegations that. Um, he uh, had arrangements in place to be paid undisclosed earnings uh, um, and uh, various other... Um, well, in fact, on a daily basis, there are there are allegations coming out from Japanese media. Um, and it, it's an incredible fall from grace, really, because um, he's he was, until literally until three weeks ago, regarded as the saviour of Nissan. In fact, he was known as Mr. Reformer of Nissan, uh, That's Japan. a catchy name. It is, isn't it? They're good at that, the Japanese, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It probably translates better, I imagine. I would have it's, thought it's so. Pro- it's probably an amazingly cool Japanese Phrase translation. Yeah. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, but go on. So, so these the, these charges are coming out um, he, about him misstating his income, his earnings, and and using uh, company money for private trips and and, and that mm-hmm, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're saying that uh, that he he used company resources to acquire, for instance, to acquire homes in Amsterdam, Paris, Rio, and Beirut. Paid for family trips, and uh, Nissan said he. Misused allegedly around $70 million for personal matters. Wow. Uh, that was company m- money um, uh, for personal matters and that he understated his income. Japanese media have said that he had an arrangement in place to be paid the undisclosed earnings via a retirement payout of around 8 billion, uh, uh, $8 billion yen, which is 260-odd million dirham, after stepping down from his post. And it's also claimed that since 2010... He reported his annual salary as $9 million. Basically, it is it is alleged, fearing that news of a much higher income would draw criticism. Now, under Japanese law, publicly listed companies are required to disclose executive pay totaling $100 million or just under $9 million at today's exchange rate. So if he was being paid mm. considerably more than that, then he's... Yeah, you know, if he was, of course, then he's clearly broken, um, broken Japanese law. Um it, it, in, in addition to that, whether he had set up something to be paid after he stepped down, um, under Japanese securities law, uh, compensation to be paid after anybody leaves post has to be disclosed. And it seems that was not the case here either. So, I mean, But beyond his own situation, he's denied these charges. Absolutely, totally, um, yeah. Just yeah. to make that clear. But beyond that, there's a lot of worry now about um, the Nissan, Renault, Mitsubishi uh, alliance. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, together they're the, big, the biggest car producer in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. and his By a long chalk, His yeah. force of personality is believed to what sort of made it work and kept mm. it together. And it was a very innovative response to a very difficult time for the car industry mm-hmm. um, when uh, Renault and Nissan got together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and he's credited with that, the Definitely, success of yeah, that. Yeah. Um, w- please do go to the national.ae for all the coverage of this. But in particular, our colleague Hashim Osiran um, has, has written a wonderful piece about um, the, the attitude in Lebanon, because Carlos Rosson is originally Lebanese, yeah, yeah. and how the Lebanese feel about him even after these charges. He's still um, loved. Yeah. He, he, yeah. Is, he is still very much yeah. admired and respected, particularly in elite circles. 
Charles and and uh, and Hashim's uh, wonderful wonderful story on this, um, calling him the Lebanese Phoenix, um, still popular <laughs> right. yeah. uh, at home. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, there is a regional connection, um, of course. Um, you know, when it comes to a businessman of this global magnitude, we, we're all interested to see, um, you know, build them up, knock them down, yeah, of kind course, of thing. Yeah. Um, but he, but I would say that this year has been interesting for that because another sort of global giant um, uh, of the corporate world, um, WPP's um, mm. uh, Martin Sorrell, mm-hmm. um, brought down in similar fashion um, earlier this year. End of an era there for the advertising industry, mm. um, and could this also mark? A, a real sea change for for the motoring industry as well, particularly in Asia. I, th- I think I think we've got to bear in mind that um, obviously the car industry and and uh, the advertising industry is two very different beasts. And I think Gosan was very different as a person to, to Sorrel. I don't think Sorrel was particularly liked um, in in the boardroom uh, or indeed generally. Whereas I think Gosan was, as you say, the Japanese loved him absolutely, um, and he certainly loved him France. Um, now he's under pressure now, but the, there are people fighting his corner. One of them being Jamie Ros- Rosenwald, who who runs the uh, four billion dollar hedge fund Dalton Investments, and he said that uh, Mr. Gosen's arrest and removal amounted to a palace coup by Nissan, and he also said that shareholders are being mistreated. Japan Inc. is fighting back, he said, against Renault's desire to take control of Nissan. Now that throws up an interesting situation where there have been reports that the Nissan board. Is has become over the past few years increasingly frustrated with Renault's um, uh, what they see as interference. The, it, in addition, Renault, which owns forty three and a half percent of Nissan, um, it has voting rights on the Nissan board. Nissan owns fifteen percent of Renault with no voting rights at all. Plus, of course, the French government owns fifteen percent of Nissan. It's very very difficult for them to to influence Renault in any way whatsoever. It's fascinating. So, so there's a bit of um, France-Japan politics going on here, creeping mm. in a mix of the corporate and, and political worlds. Mm. Um, you always feel with these situations, particularly where there's a, a sort of a, a, a real personality involved, um, that you know how much of this is boardroom politics, how much of it is real. Uh, as you said, um, time will tell. Mm. Uh, More Business Extra in just a moment, but first allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. We have Beyond the Headlines, which looks at the biggest news of the week with a Middle Eastern flavour, and also from our sports team, The Cricket Pod, which looks at the gentleman's game. You can download both of those as well as this one at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio content. Talking of the virtual, earlier this month I caught up with John Lacey, the founder and chief executive of Dubai-based Power League Gaming, or PLG, about the upcoming eSports Grand Slam to be held in Abu Dhabi next month. The event is a first for the UAE and the wider Middle East and will see professional, regional and international video games players battle it out in the capital to be hailed world champion. Well, thanks very much for your time uh, this afternoon, John. Um, I wonder if we can just start by uh, briefly outlining what um, Power League Gaming, known as PLG, what does pa- what does PLG do as a, as a company? So um, we are uh, predominantly involved in the gaming industry. Um, everybody uh, in the team, myself, is completely focused on the gaming industry in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, we are what is regarded as an esports company. Mm-hmm. So we're an operator. 
uh, for esports across the region for various publishers. Um, and in that sense, uh, we run tournaments, basically. So and that's, is, that, is that at the request of, of um, uh, clients or brands? or uh, Who comes to you and says, we'd like, to, we'd like you to do this competition for us? Yeah, so if you look back over the last uh, four or five years of the company, uh, the way that the business has come about is we've had m- multinational brands come to us uh, asking to get involved in gaming, uh, you know, in the, in the gaming scene. How can they connect with the audience? How can they have a role in gaming? So that's the sort of role that we play um, in, 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 in conjunction with that mm-hmm. is connecting brands with publishers, publishers with brands. And for the last four or five years, that's what it's been about um, from the background of the people that we've, we've hired in the company and from myself. Um, I worked in media and advertising um, uh, for the majority uh, of my time in the Middle East mm-hmm. and having those relationships with brands and having those that understanding of the audience in the Middle East and being able to then then sort of bridge the gap mm-hmm. um, that is there between what is um, two completely different industries. So, yeah. you, you know, you have an FMCG brand yeah. or an FMCG um, industry who wants to connect to the youth, who wants to connect to a gaming audience. And they don't know a lot beyond that. They know there is an audience there. They know there are gamers. They know that gaming is becoming bigger and bigger mm-hmm. you know, as a form of entertainment, you know, whether it's on console, whether it's on mobile, yeah. whether it's on PC. And they want to get to that audience. They see the numbers, they see it growing, the, you know, the, the, the age of digital moving away mm-hmm. from traditional forms of, of, of um, broadcast mm-hmm. and, and uh, media consumption. So um, with, with all of that together, there's a recognition from, from brands that they, they want to tap in um, to that market. Right. Um, so we originally saw that with a few traditional FMCG brands, such yeah. as Nescafe and um, uh, Coca-Cola. And, and in, in, the, in that sense, do they, do they literally come to you and say, we, we want, we'd like you to make a game that, in, that has our name in it? Somehow. Yeah, so that's that's how the conversations usually begin. They usually begin with quite obvious things. So, can we be in the game? Mm. Um, but we don't make the game. As I said, we're you know, we're an operator mm-hmm. for esports mm-hmm. tournaments, mm-hmm. and and we support them in in marketing and PR uh, and as extensions of mm-hmm. that. Um, but the the publisher themselves, you know, is is a publisher that is promoting um, a game that's been developed by by a development studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and each publisher has either own studios um, or it uses studios to produce its games. Sometimes on an annual basis, sometimes on biannual, mm-hmm. whatever whatever that is. Some studios are making multiple games. Not all of them are for esports either. Mm-hmm. Um, so some could be, you know, single player um, RPG games, role, you know, role playing games. games. Yeah, 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 you got that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then some are multiplayer, some are online, some are not, some are mobile. So th- there's a, there's obviously a vast industry, and certain key publishers are focused um, on the region and have become more and more focused over the mm-hmm. years. So if you take the biggest game here, um, which is FIFA, um, I don't game. think there's any. Yeah. yeah, there's no there's no debate that EA Sports, you know. From, from FIFA sort of 11, 12, 13, right the way through to the new edition now, FIFA 19, um, has been the dominant uh, game in the market. Um, and is that, is that the market here or the market globally as well? Yeah, it's it's a very big game globally. Yeah. Um, I don't have the specific stats no, on, on how big it is in each market, but it's, it's definitely one of the leading titles yeah. in the in the world. And it's and been going a long time. Even I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. It was always uh, going head to head with with Pro Evolution Soccer mm-hmm. over the years, um, but now I think it's it's widely regarded as the dominant title um, in in that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the success of FIFA in the region, when it was um, localized some five six years ago, I don't remember the exact date, and and they introduced Arabic commentary, mm-hmm. and they made a you know a big fuss about that when it when it came in. Um, and then Arabic menus came in and all of these sorts of things. Um, that localization of the game obviously helps 
Um, it then helps the audience identify with it better, um, and then that adds to the to the uh, fact that we are supporting them doing doing tournaments mm-hmm. um, and doing esports for them. And those competitions um, that grew over the last four or five years uh, went hand in hand with some of the traditional partners. So be it a, a Coca Cola or a McDonald's or one of the the sort of endemic sponsors to FIFA actually yeah. became an extent an extension well. to the mm-hmm. to the gaming and esports, and then. Through the through the years up until um, last year, even saw Coca Cola take on an active role in esports on a global level on the lead up to the World Cup. The obviously it's it is a huge huge industry. You know, it's a multi billion dollar industry. Um, but what what intrigues me is whilst these big com- big name companies want to be involved in it, it seems a very closed market. Um, how? How do they ju- how do they justify uh, what it would cost them to be involved in in these uh, either in the competitions or in in creating their own leagues, when it seems certainly to an outsider that nobody except people involved in the industry are going to be touched by it. So, is that why is it that such a big industry is a, is really kind of unknown to most people? Yeah, I think just to start with, it comes back to the fact that most people when you talk about video games and even when you when you sit in front of you know anyone um, outside of the industry with be it a be it a CEO or a marketing manager or whoever it is the first thing that they usually comment on is my son plays that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. or my kids you know my kids yeah. play that or my, you know my nephew plays that yeah. game and that's how they see it they see you know for the, for the most part kids sitting in front of a screen yeah. with a controller you know, just wasting their time perhaps yeah. is the view yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. Um, and it's only recently that people have realized that, well, this is a whole social network mm-hmm. of people to tap into. Um, you know, I remember some years ago, um, the Blizzard CEO um, commenting, Activision co- Blizzard, yeah. Yeah, Activision yeah. Blizzard, um, commenting about the development of a, of a gaming social media platform, which was what, what in, in, in short, that's what he was summarizing, mm-hmm. would that um, um, a battle net would become. So their platform, multiple games, you know, everybody living within that network. It's almost um, like a kind of an esports Facebook or an esports yep, Snapchat. That, that's exactly what what they envisaged it mm-hmm. becoming, and and to a degree, that's what it is. When when people are spending, you know, you know, some people are spending, you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen hours a day playing. That's not the norm. That's the extreme. Mm-hmm. But you've got different sort of degrees of that going going yeah. down from the casual player yeah. right up yeah. to the extreme player, yeah. and they are living online with their friends. Yeah. They're not just connecting you know with disparate people around the world for a few minutes it's their social networks that are that are playing mm-hmm. uh, those games mm-hmm. and what then galvanizes those those people into the into um, that network is the fact that once one or two of your your friends play it it's likely the others that were perhaps thinking about another game will join just because mm-hmm. their friends are there mm-hmm. so people are now playing games and audiences are, are are gravitating towards certain games just because everyone else's it becomes part of pop culture so everyone's buying that music cd Mm -hmm. or everyone's playing that record or everyone's listening you know you know when when i was growing up you know you'd listen to that music probably not always because you liked it but because all your friends were you know you'd go to those places to hang out because all your friends were there now people hang out on their pc they hang out in in these networks and these gaming networks have the advantage of having incredible content you know you're not just sitting there scrolling through pictures or images or jokes or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you have an in, entire world um, to explore. Yeah. 
Um, or many you can, worlds, yeah, exactly. yeah, you know, you can, you know, they, it's phenomenal now what they can do within these within these environments. Um, you only have to look at what's happened with Fortnite recently um, yeah, and other yeah, games. Yeah, just yeah. you know, bringing in simple, you know, three three second dance yeah. moves into a game, you know, creates a worldwide phenomenon. And is that is that something a, a games maker could predict? Um, you know, what would be the next Fortnite recently? Um, I, I think I think everybody would have love to have predicted mm. the the fortnight phenomenon that came along but i think there was a lot of signs you know there that this was this was coming yeah. you know the 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 huge online you know sort of multiplayer games the big mmos like world of warcraft probably sort of sowed the seed in many developers minds for the possibility um but but i think in the past the large online games have perhaps been too technical for the masses mm -hmm. too hardcore as someone some people would say and i think that has also been an obstacle for your so mass consumers or I suppose the the mass brands and and the media industry as a whole to sort of identify sort of coming back to your question yeah. it, it seems quite close but actually it seems a little bit sort of either overwhelming yeah. you know or, mm -hmm. or slightly misunderstood mm -hmm. or you know it's just a bit beyond the, the, the comprehension of anybody that's not 13 yeah, yeah. you know yeah, to understand yeah. well, what the, know that. What, yeah. what the hell is going on yeah. um, so I think now um, uh, for the for the purists, people will say, okay, they're they're dumbing the games down. They're making them, you know, they're all for kids and all of this sort of thing. But um, that was inevitably going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, some games are for the masses, just like some music is for the masses. Mm -hmm. So it's the sort of pop video games yeah. are what you're going to get now. Yeah. So I'd, I would describe something like Fortnite as you know a uh, you know a pop, a sort of a logical yeah. step. Yeah, yeah pop okay. pop game. And when it when it comes to, I mean, as you say, there are millions and millions of, of players out there who regularly uh, regularly access this material. Um, from the uh, brand's point of view, is it just as simple as in within the game having their name there, um, or or is there is there are there more subtle or or perhaps wider ranging uh, ways in which a brand will be um, interactive with or, or, or integrated uh, in a in a, a game? Yeah, it's 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 a tricky one on both sides because um, the you know the, the development time um, of a game. And everything that goes in from start to finish of of making the game, getting it, getting it out to market, publishing it, um, and doing that now on a, on a global scale, because the majority of games that we're talking about, um, you know, go out globally. Mm -hmm. We're not talking, you know, one specific market and then it gets rolled out. You know, it's a global marketplace for gaming, um, and they're going a, a multi-platform as well. Yeah. You know, whether that's it goes onto mobile, it goes onto PlayStation, onto Xbox, onto PC. So, in terms of that development development process and everything that goes into just getting the game out there and making sure that people download it or buy it from the off the shelf, or um, the opportunity is is very very small for a brand to get involved in that process. You know, they have to be a significant partner mm -hmm. on a global scale mm -hmm. to get anything. I would say in the game at the development stage, and that means presumably a significant amount of money. Uh, yeah, you would presume uh, as well. They have to make mm -hmm. a significant commitment, and the mm -hmm. conversations need to be had early enough. So it's so coming back to the point of you know, can I get in the game? Mm. It, it's usually a no. It, right. It's very very difficult. Um, and also, I don't think a developer or publisher would want to polarize themselves, you know, mm -hmm. just towards one you know one particular brand or anything. So how then, in that case, do does a brand uh, maximize its um, return on investment, if you like, with with uh, a game? Yeah. So now, so now you've got the, the all the other extensions in which you can connect with a with a titles audience um, and that's where people are looking to now and that's where sort of esports comes in at the other end because um, esports is like a byproduct of the of the game itself um, some developers have gone so far as to make e you know put esports at the heart 
of their game. I'd argue that um, League of Legends and the the LCS or the League of Legends Championship Series that's run globally is really at the heart of of the game. Um, and then the other big area that again connects all of this when we're talking about whether it's you know tap whether it's brands tapping into the audience or whether it's players you know being able to to earn from the from the from the from the passion that they have for the games and the time that they put into it is streaming. So what has really brought the whole space to life, not just for esports, but also for the marketing and promotion of the games as well, is streaming online. So by that you mean watching people playing games? Watching people playing games, yeah. Another thing that people say, wow, do people really do this? But yeah. now it's not just a small niche of people that are doing this. It is a global phenomenon. The amount of people that are watching casual streamers who are just streaming the game for fun um, and not doing it on a serious level to compete in esports, up to the professionals that will be giving you tips and masterclasses, and then actually watching the leagues um, as they unfold. So a huge area for us is broadcasting our leagues. So you know, if we're broadcasting and streaming matches that could span say three months of qualification yeah. across the GCC yeah. um, we've done that for multiple games um, in Arabic and English we then are now doing a global open so we have eight territories in the world uh, for CSGO where we are doing um, we're offering eight spots uh, into our Grand Slam final uh, at the end how, of the year how 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 does PLG make money from that though I'm still I'm still trying to get my head around how you actually make a profit from all this organization and setting up and providing presumably you know, monies for for for, for prizes, um, organising the event itself. Yep. Presumably, that all costs. So, where where does your where does your return on investment come in? So, again, there are there are there are so many different facets to the esports industry. Um, you know that not only do you need to employ and have the, those um, those capabilities and those services, you then obviously you need to remunerate them as well. So, whether it's setting up events and being paid to set up those events by publishers and brands. Um, or investing in them ourselves. Those events, again, come with, with sponsors. They come with the funding from the market, from the industry, from the endemic and non-endemic partners of the industry. Um, and then if you can get as far as to be able to command enough of an audience that you can ticket the, those those events, that's one aspect. That's the obvious one that people obviously gravitate to mm. because, you know, it's it, it's something that everybody sees from pictures around the world, you know, stadiums starting to fill with yeah. people and all these sorts of things. But the, the instances of, of you making money and profit on those you know, is few and far between because there's high risk in setting up any event. Mm, you know, there's mm. there's huge upfront costs to that that sort of operation. There's a huge investment, and there's always the risk that people won't come, yeah. or, or it might not be right for many different reasons: yeah. time of time of year, popularity of the game, the market mm. that you're in. Then, um, moving away from something as obvious as the events, you've then got um, uh, servicing um, your tournaments themselves and getting an audience for them. So. You have to have, you know, an operation that, you know, can, can plan those tournaments, um, understands the game, understands how to um, run a league, um, you know, in, in all the, for all the different titles that you have. Um, you need to build up a critical mass of, of different titles and to run. this is where PLG comes yep, in with the to, services that PLG to, offers. To run regularly. Yeah. If, you're only running, if you're only running one title, then it's harder and it's, it's much harder to to gather a critical mass of audience mm -hmm. uh, to you as a, as a third party like PLG. Mm -hmm. Obviously, an EA is focused on on just running, say, a FIFA tournament yeah. or Riot Games, just a League of Legends. But for ourselves, we need to run multiple titles through the year, multiple leagues, have them online, have a constant presence. Mm -hmm. That constant presence and that engagement with the audience is what brands are looking for. So, again, it's, it's, not, it's not one size fits all, mm -hmm. which creates an opportunity because 
we have different flavors of esports that we can offer to different flavors of brands. So, you know, one brand might be interested in a, a title that is, that is focused on 18 to 24 year olds. Mm -hmm. So it might be a more adult style game or, or, a, or a game that comes with a 16 plus or 18 plus certificate mm -hmm. and it suits the genre of product that they're, they're, they're selling. Mm -hmm. So if it's a very macho brand, you know, involving guns and destruction mm -hmm. and warfare, yeah. then there might be a brand that's, that's interested in that. Yeah. Then other brands might be interested in, in something that is more sort of mass, more fun, more cartoony, mm -hmm. um, you know, comes with, you know, more of a sort of quirky pop culture sort of vibe, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then you've got all sorts of extensions that go from, go from, go from there. You can engage an audience that likes cosplay that likes the characters in the game that you know are are into the the whole lore of the game as they can all the the storylines of the of the game not just the competitions yeah. itself um and again there's lots of marketing tools that you can build off those that the incredible creativity that's gone into these games can all be used as extensions into marketing and, and PR for brands. Mm -hmm. So whether that's licensing the characters to put on, you know, a cereal box yeah. or whether yeah. it's, you know, collectibles and, you know, so all the yeah. sorts of tactics that you've seen, you know, traditionally with, you know, say, say a, a Disney yeah. or, you know, a, a cartoon network or, or these sort of these, these huge, uh, conglomerates that have, have made their millions out of, out of merchandising mm -hmm. and, and um, I'm pushing the, 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 the broader franchise. Um, that's, the, that's the other things that people are interested mm -hmm. in. So while you may see a sponsor that at face value is getting involved uh, in esports or getting involved in the competition, it's very likely that nowadays they have a much wider interest in the franchise, in the audience, and what it brings to, uh, to, that, con mm -hmm. to that consumer. You have uh, obviously... PLG is, is bringing the eSports Grand Slam to Abu Dhabi in December, um, and there's been a, a build-up of, of um, qualifiers, I guess you would call them, uh, to, to, who will arrive at that uh, place. Um, I'm right, I think, in thinking that, that this is the first time such an event has been held in the Middle East. Is that, is that correct? So an international, internationally available event? Yeah, so there has been has been instances of of what you could describe as as international esports events where players have come over from from abroad. It's not to say that we're absolutely the first, mm. but I'd like to say that in terms of a of a homegrown uh, tournament, you know, out of the Middle East or mm. a, or PLG as a as a business that was born out of the Middle East, mm -hmm. based um, in Dubai, yeah. based in Dubai, that is that is providing um, a platform for. Um, gamers from the from the Middle East to compete with international players um, on on inter, you know on an international mm -hmm. uh, scale and that will um, be streamed as well yeah. yep which will be which will be streamed which will be held at a live event uh -huh. um, ticketed yep for uh -huh. for those for those players to come internationally yeah. uh, and also for the players to compete locally mm -hmm. I think that is a first in itself that it's often been are players that would come in on an invite basis like a in, showcase internationally almost. and do a yeah. showcase or it would be internationally in the sense of of the sort of MENA tournaments we've done or GCC tournaments mm -hmm. where you have players travelling from around the GCC into a final so we've done over the last four or five years we've done finals um, that have been held in around the region where from our online competitions and from our local events people have qualified through the usual steps and then the last 16 or 32 have flown in to to play off in the in the grand finale. This is the first time where we will have that scenario of our online leagues or our nationals, as we call it, and the finalists of those come in at the end of the season in December alongside the winners of our live events, um, be it a, a, a 
a, what do we call an arena. So an arena that we might run in, say, a Comic-Con or a, or a gaming event or even in the cinema now um, that we do with, um, with Vox Cinemas. We have a partnership with, with Vox Cinemas where we, whereby we run live qualifiers in the cinemas. So you pull, you pull players from the live events, you pull players from the online events. We do that across the GCC. And now we're mixing it with the same, but we're doing an online qualifier globally for, for eight, um, eight regions with uh, eight invitees. So we have the whole mix. John, thanks very much for your time this afternoon. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Business Extra. Uh, One of the few things that remains is to thank my co-host, Chris Nelson. My pleasure, Mustafa. And our producer, Kevin Jeffers. Now, of course, go to thenational.ae for all our coverage of the stories that we were talking about and much, much more. And do please join us again next time. 